And I just remember clearly, like when we moved back to Cairo after the invasion, which was a lot more open than the strict Kuwait that I grew up in, a, a few more kids dated at school. And I just became fascinated by the nonverbals. Like I could predict who's going to be with who because of the eye gaze interactions. And I, I just like became so fascinated with that. And, and I do think that, you know, that kind of curiosity about this unspoken language, I've had an interest in that from a very young age. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Tim Cook, and it is, what all of us have to do to make sure we're using AI in a way that is for the benefit of humanity, not to the detriment of humanity. Our guest today will be able to talk us through this. Rana L. Kalubi is the co-founder and CEO of Activa, an MIT Media Lab spinoff that pioneers human perception AI or artificial intelligence that can understand all things human. Rana has a PhD from the University of Cambridge and a postdoctorate in MIT. She's delivered a TED Talk that's been viewed nearly 2 million times and is the author of the new book, Girl Decoded, which released April 21st. Rana, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. So you've had a, a remarkable career path, especially given your time studying some of the world's top educational institutions. What aspect of your upbringing led you down the path that, that you've taken today? So I grew up in the Middle East. Um, I'm originally from Egypt. My parents really, really prioritized education. So I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I'm a geek. <laughs> <laughs> and both my parents are actually in, in technology. They met, my parents met uh, during a computer programming class in the 70s. My dad taught COBOL and my mom was sitting in the class and, <laughs> uh, you know, ended up getting married. Uh, so I, you know, so my parents are technologists. And so we grew up with very early gaming consoles and just technology in general. But I think the key kind of, I don't know, I developed an interest as an undergraduate studying computer science. And I realized that computers not only affect how we do business and go about our daily activities, but fundamentally affect how we connect and communicate as people. And that's always been at the center of my curiosity and, and my research. And when did you start gravitating towards uh, AI in particular? So at the, towards the end of my undergraduate, at the beginning of my master's, um, I was back in Cairo. I was studying at the American University in Cairo. And I was looking for a thesis topic and I stumbled upon this book called Affective Computing, uh, written by an MIT professor called Rosalind Picard. And I ordered the book, took forever to ship to Cairo. It got stuck in customs for some reason that I still don't understand. But eventually I read the book and her thesis, Ros's thesis was that as we look at intelligence, we need machines to have human-like intelligence, which includes emotional intelligence. And I just got fascinated by that concept. I'm a very emotive person. Um, you know, a lot of facial expressions and vocal intonations, as I'm sure you could probably tell through my voice. And I just was fascinated by that concept and ended up kind of pivoting, if you like, my research career to, to build machines that can understand human emotions. And, and what did the capability look like when you started that? Probably wasn't as much you could really 
do, right? Absolutely. And so this was over 20 years ago now. And, you know, remember the days when our webcams, like the Logitech webcams, they were like big and like yeah. round, stick them on top of your monitor. And this was pre-smartphones. So we didn't have cameras on our phones and our laptops. Uh, computer vision was almost non-existent. So like devices were super slow cameras were blurry. So the core technologies weren't even there. But I, I don't know, I just projected into the future and kind of imagined like, if this is where the state of the universe is, you know, project 5, 10, 15 years. And I kind of imagined that all these sensors are going to become way more ubiquitous and compute power will be available. And so of course, that turned out to be true. And so the work, you know, when I started, it was really hard to build a computer that can read your facial expressions. And now we do that at scale you know, and it's out in the market. So it's been exciting. I've been thinking it hasn't been long that during like a political debate, it would flag on the screen, like not telling the truth, telling the truth. <laughs> I mean, are we, are we close to the, <laughs> to getting there? Um, you know, lie detection is a tricky, <laughs> is a tricky subject because you can probably capture some of the kind of, we call them like micro expressions or yeah. like, you know, when you're lying, you, le- you leak these facial expressions. So you could probably flag those. But to really determine if a person is not telling the truth, you also have to incorporate the context and what they're saying. We steer away totally from this whole like lie detection space. It's not, and we can talk about our core values, but yeah, anyways, we stay away from that space. However, with the political yeah. debates, it's really <laughs> interesting to capture the audience response to that right, right. and kind of see what messages resonate with people and uh, what messages don't. I've always actually thought when I'm speaking that there's certain slides where I can really see visually as I'm scanning that I sort of have the room and the nodding and it would be really mm-hmm. fascinating for a speaker afterwards to to get that data to know like which of their slides were landing and, and not landing. Totally. And then I mean, now like think about like with a lot of our work uh, going online and a lot of events now happening virtually, I find it like really stressful to present a webinar and just not see how my audience right. is responding. Like, because you say something and you think it's funny, but you have no clue, right? Actually, I want to do one thing because I skipped over it and back it up 10,000 feet definitionally because AI is one of those things now where it is it is a buzzword. And while there are some experts like you, there are also everyone else using it. I think I saw something that said like 60% of European startups that claim to be AI startups weren't even using AI. So will you help define what it is, and also for people who don't understand this distinction, the difference between uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, because I think people use them interchangeably and they're not the same. Yeah. Okay. So I'll first start by saying my area is emotion AI, which is a subset of AI. So right. that's yeah. just AI in general. So AI, of course, stands for artificial intelligence, and it's a field of computer science that aspires to build human-like intelligence, all aspects of human-like intelligence. The way you build AI is through machine learning, which is an approach, you know, again, in computer, it's a kind of a, a field in computer science that leverages a ton of data and algorithms to automate a lot of kind of human intelligence or aspects of human intelligence. So for example, you know, natural language processing, or like when you talk to Siri, that's using some form, it must be using some form of machine learning because it is recognizing your words and then it's translating it into meaning. A lot of AI is focused on what I would call IQ or cognitive intelligence. 
that's kind of the equivalent in the human universe. And a lot of my work is focused on artificial emotional intelligence. So, so what is emotional intelligence? It's people's abilities to clue into other people's nonverbal signals. Again, your facial expressions, your gestures, your body posture, your activities. And we do that all the time. We incorporate all this information and they're like, hmm, Bob doesn't look very interested. I'm going to change, you know, I'm going to change tacts here. Even our kids, right? Our kids are so good at doing that, even from a very young age. They'll find the right moment, you know, when you're right in the middle of a conference call and they'll be like, dad, dad, can I, you know, can I play this video game? And like, you of course say, yes, sure, because <laughs> you don't want to get into it, right? Like this is all mind reading and kind of emotional intelligence. So we think that this is equally important for machines that interface with humans on a day-to-day basis, like your smartphone or your Alexa. Yeah, and, and how is your company what is the solution that your company provides? So we focus on, um, so, so about 90% of how we communicate is nonverbal. Only 10% is in the actual words you use. Um, and of the 90%, it's broken down almost equally between your facial expressions, your gestures, and your vocal intonation. We started with facial expressions, so that's kind of our core expertise, but we're now adding other channels like your voice. So what we do is we use tens of thousands of examples of people smiling and frowning and smirking, and we use machine learning and deep learning to automate all of that so that, you know, using the camera on your device, we can detect your different facial expressions, say, while you're responding to content or watching videos or playing a game or driving your car. Uh, And that's kind of the core machine perception product that we have. So, so I'm curious, like, who are your clients? Is that then used to change the experience based on the feedback in real time? Or, or is that used more as like a, learn, a learning for them across a longer life cycle? Yeah, both. So in the media analytics business, so we have our, very, our first kind of uh, product is a, an advertising testing. So it's content testing solution. And it's, you know, it's deployed in 90 countries around the world. Fortune Global 500 companies use it to really kind of understand how people emotionally engage with their consumers. Yeah. And, and so that, that product is more of an insights product. So after the fact, we aggregate all the responses of everybody who's watched an ad and we're able to show you moment by moment, where did people resonate? So, you know, this particular part, people laughed here, they found it super boring and the advertisers use it to just make decisions around media spend as well as, you know, just, deciding how to craft the content. So sometimes they'll go from a 60 second ad to like a 30 second ad, right? They know which parts are redundant and they can cut it out. But then we have other markets where it's more real time, like in the automotive industry, where the car will respond in real time, depending on, on your state. Uh, it'll ask you if you're sad and, and, <laughs> and want to change the music station. I actually, so I, I have a personal story, like a, a really dramatic story about that. I was once, um, this was back when I lived in Cairo. I was driving my Volvo car and I was really distraught. I was really upset. I was just crying. It was really bad. And you could imagine that I wasn't really focused on the driving and I hit a truck and the car got totaled. I, I was fine. I just like my shoulder got dislocated. But I was thinking like, if my car had emotion AI, it would have known that I was like not in a state to drive. And it would have maybe flagged at the beginning of the drive, you know, like, I can see you're upset, maybe just be vigilant. I'll, you know, the car will be vigilant too. So anyways, I think about that day a lot and how emotion AI would have helped. 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably impacted you. Do you now? Do you have? Are you there in the room? Because I assume that. I mean, I watch the Super Bowl ads sometimes, and and again, it's judgment. But I'm like, really, five million dollars for that? I just don't get it. So, how have you seen resistance as people are presented with as as you know the data from this sort of trashes their their creative ideas or tells them that it doesn't work? Are 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 they becoming more receptive to it, or some people really like dig in? despite what's being presented to them? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because we often work with the brands and the market research agencies, not the creatives. Right. Creatives really do push back on this data, <laughs> uh, push back on data in general, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they're a little bit more open to this type of data because we can show them the facial expressions of people. Like, we can totally show them when you know, people roll their eyes, right? It's supposed to be a, a tear jerk, you know, a tear, what's it called? Tear jerker. Yeah, tear jerker. Yeah. And they're, and they're laughing. And they're yeah. laughing or they're rolling their eyes. Right. So I feel like it's more, it's more of a human type of data, humane type of data. And, but still, yes, there's definitely this type of tension. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So based on the knowledge that you've gained from all this technology, and, and this is really relevant you know, right now, I think in the middle of, of some of the leadership crisis that we're going through, but how do the best link, uh, thinkers and leaders, what are some of the principles the best thinkers and leaders communicate to really resonate with their audiences that are sort of universal principles? Hmm. This will not surprise you. I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> I just believe that leading with empathy is just so important. Um, 
you know, I, I feel like as leaders, we need to be vulnerable. We need to be very open about our experiences. It really bugs me that when you look at, you know, startup founders and CEOs, it looks like this glamorous life. It's not, right? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty challenging. <laughs> it's like an emotional roller coaster every single day. And I, I feel like we need to talk more about that and be more open about that. So I've, I try to do that. And I just find that it, it just resonates so much with like, it just builds so much goodwill with our partners and my team and our investors. So I don't know. Well, well, you have the data to show people too, right? Like here's your audience tensing up, you know, right. as, as you do A and, and leaning in as, as you do B, right? I think for a lot of people, it's just everyone knows that, I mean, they're told that, but then they struggle to deliver like that. They're worried about, you know, and, and think about now and all the crisis. Like I, I think some of the best communications is just when people have said, I don't know, or figuring that out, or it's probably going to be bad. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the risks of AI and, and emotion AI in general? So there are definitely risks, and we talk about those very publicly. So the, the main risk is that this data is extremely personal, and you know our emotions affect how we make decisions. So you could imagine how people could nefariously use this data to manipulate your decisions or persuade you to make a decision that you would have otherwise not wanted to do. It could be used in various ways to profile against uh, minority groups. And so we're very vocal actually as a company against these use cases. So we're very, like our core values basically mandate that everything we do is on an opt-in and consent basis. We never, ever, ever let, you know, we never, ever partner with, with a company that's not going to disclose that this data is being collected. I'm a big believer that in return for sharing this type of information, you have to get some value in return. And, and, you know, there's a spectrum of what that looks like, but you have to, you know, I, I worry about the power asymmetry, like a number of organizations have access to all this data and it's not really helping the individuals that share this data. Right. And then in general, we stay away from industries like surveillance and lie detection and deception detection and governments where I think that there's risk of discrimination against people. We just steer away from all of that um, and are very vocal about it. But who's, I've been very confused. I mean, this is, and, and this may be outside of exactly what you do. Uh, so if you don't know the answer, the, whose jurisdiction <laughs> does it fall under? Because I've seen some cities act versus the FTC act versus the federal government. Like who, who is the end regulator of how people use technologies like this? So we are part of Partnership on AI, which is this consortium that was started by uh, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, am I missing? Facebook. Um, but they also include uh, folks like ACLU and Amnesty International and other civil liberty organizations, and then a number of startups like Affectiva. And we all meet together. I'm part of the, or Affectiva is part of the uh, FATE committee, which is fair, accountable, transparent, and equitable uh, or ethical AI. And so we come, you know, we all meet together and we try to come up with thoughtful regulation and, and best practices around all of that. It's very early days. There is a lot of confusion. It's not clear who owns that. It's evolving. Yeah, I'm confused whether it's a policy or a health or a legal or a, yeah. I mean, yeah. in terms of, so it sounds like the good players in the industry are trying to come together and get ahead of this. Yes, yes. And I, I'm a big believer that that's so, like, I think that 
as innovators in this space, we can't just sit back and just say, oh, you know, the regulators will get to it. I think we actually have to shape it and advocate for it. So, so I, you know, our company advocates for thoughtful regulation because I know that we have very strong, a strong commitment to ethics. So I'm hoping that with the right regulations actually going to help us versus maybe some other competitors who don't care about ethics, you know, and right now the market can't tell the difference. Right. Yeah. Better for the ethical people to, to separate themselves early. Right. Then it starts to become clear the differences. I hope so. <laughs> That's the theory, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Thoughtful regulation is a good word. So how do you think computers will become more prevalent in our daily lives? And what, what will that mean paradoxically for the future of, of human interaction? If we start having interactions with machines, do we lose our ability to have interactions with humans? Hey, there's, a, there's an irony in this in that you're teaching computers to learn human interactions, but I, I hear that kids spending so much time online that, that when they put faces in front of them of different reactions, they can't identify them <laughs> any, anymore. Yeah. This is actually like going in, in opposite directions. It's actually not. So I'll try to explain. I my aha moment in all of this was when I first moved to Cambridge University from Egypt. I had an epiphany, right? I realized I was spending more time with my laptop than any other human being, which was really sad. But I was like, this thing, despite like us being intimate, had completely no idea how I was feeling. But I guess even worse than that, it was the main portal of my communication with my family back home. And I still feel that way. Like all of the richness of our communication face-to-face -face just disappears when you're online. Yes, you can send an emoji here and there. Sometimes yeah. you can time, right? But it's like, it's not the same. Right. Uh, which is why all of the social distancing, you know, with, with everything going around in the world today, is, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I, I had this realization that by making machines emotionally intelligent, we actually are helping each other become more emotionally intelligent when we're in an online digital universe. Like we're all emotionally intelligent right. in general or across the spectrum when we are in the real world. But when we all migrate to a digital universe, I think we just lose our emotional intelligence because of the way technology is designed. So if we fix that, I think it, it can actually help human connections. Right. You can envision being in a video call and the system telling you you're, you're losing the other person, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about your book. I love the title, Girl Decoded, which is going to be out by the time this episode runs. So it's an interesting combination. I'd love to hear what made you decide to write a book that was like deeply focused on your work with AI, but also highly autobiographical at the same time. So we... we the initial idea was to write an emotion AI book, right? Very focused on the technology and why we need human-centric AI and the ethical and moral implications and the applications, like all of that. Um, but I, but uh, very early in the process, I had lunch with um, my editor um, at Penguin Random House, and he was like, oh, tell me your story. And so I was like, yeah, I grew up in Egypt. And, and he was like, that's the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, really? And, and so... I guess because my my story is, is different in that I grew up in the Middle East and a lot of people um, haven't really had a lot of exposure to the Middle East, at least here in the United States. I felt like I had an opportunity to shed some light into what it's like to grow up in a family that's both conservative, but also like liberal in, in different ways and just kind of chart my journey coming to the United States and 
you know, becoming American and starting a company and yeah. It, it occurs to me as you said this and, and how can emotion AI help us potentially understand cultural differences, particularly in communication? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, right? Like imagine if you're traveling to Japan and you have like a, the equivalent of Google Translate, but for like... <laughs> right. I was thinking about our, our managing director in the UK always does some very funny stuff with our US team around like what people are saying in the UK and what they really mean. Like I'm slightly concerned means I'm really concerned. And like there is, right, there's like a translate thing between some behaviors and, and some languages that, that is, a, is a struggle for people. I, I, I wonder what that would look like or how that would work. There's definitely a need for it. Yeah, definitely. We, I mean, we found in our data, we've analyzed over 9 million like facial responses from like 90 countries around the world. And we found that there are, there's definitely cross-cultural differences in when people express and how intensely they express. There's gender differences. So w- women tend to be more positive and, but that also depends on where, like the US, we found that women tend to smile longer and more intensely, 40% times more than men. Uh, Whereas in the UK, for example, we found no statistical difference between men and women, right? Like really interesting, fascinating, I think, in my opinion. So, um, so yeah, you're right. There are, there is an opportunity for like a translator. I'm curious, are there other macro, as you looked across the culture, what other high level patterns did you see that could be helpful for people? The one I found most interesting is the difference between collectivist cultures and individualistic cultures. So so in the U.S., very individualistic culture, you are kind of, you get brownie points for being unique and different, right? I have to opinionate it, including both a positive opinion and a negative opinion, right? A critical opinion. In collectivist cultures like China or even Egypt, you do not want to veer from the, you, you don't, you really want to conform. And so people are very reticent to share any negative. Like if I ask you, Oh, what do you think of my product? You're very likely to say, I love it. And, and very unlikely to give any critical feedback. So, uh, so I thought I found that very interesting. It's consistent with research that's been done in sociology for years, but we see it very clearly in our facial data. So actually, well, now I want to be clear. Is the data showing that what they, I mean, so is it cultural conformity? Like, is it is it is what they're saying different from what they're projecting, <laughs> or or is it is it all aligned? Yeah, no, we've seen both. So, yeah. so like, example, there was one this one ad we tested in India a few years ago. It was for like a, a body lotion, and the ad, the audience was for women. So we tested it on Indian women. And basically the ad went as follows. It was like this young couple and the woman was wearing a sari. Uh, so her midriff, her midriff was showing and her husband was like being playful with her, right? Which is like kind of taboo. Like yeah. it was a very kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, it was like pushing it. Provocative. Yeah, provocative. Yeah. Provocative. Um, so it was a provocative ad. The women self-reported that, oh my God, you should not air this ad. It's like not kosher. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, however, you look at their facial expressions during that scene and there's a ton of smiling. There's a ton of like eyebrow raises, like interest. So I found that really interesting. That was a very clear case where they felt they had to say this is inappropriate, but they actually liked the ad. And inevitably the brand decided to air the ad and it did really well. Yeah. So A, that's fascinating. B, that highlights the dangers, right? Of, of You can imagine a totalitarian regime 
then you know saying oh do you love our supreme leader and and people say everyone says yes but then it's a text fear right or all them I, that's where you can see people using this in a in a in a really dangerous way a hundred percent exactly exactly so there's a particular portion of the book uh, that's pretty striking where you describe living in Kuwait during Iraq's invasion in 1990s. Tell us a little bit, like, how did you end up there and what did you learn from that experience that you've carried forward to today? So my parents, um, I was born in Cairo, but right after they moved to Kuwait, uh, these countries in the Gulf were, were really kind of, high, you know, bringing expats to build the country. And so my parents ended up in Kuwait. Uh, and I went to school there. And then when I was about 10 years old, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Um, we were on summer vacation. My sisters and mom and I were in, on summer vacation in Cairo, but my dad got stuck there. So in the book, I actually have pictures um, that my dad took, like hiding behind the curtains from our house. Mm-hmm. And he took pictures of all these Iraqi tanks kind of parked in front of our house. It was really scary. We lost touch uh, with my dad for about two weeks. He eventually made his way through Iraq and Jordan and, and whatnot to, to Egypt. But it was, it was a tough time. What I remember the most, and I probably blocked a lot of it, actually. What I remember the most is that we, we just went into like execution mode. Like I feel like I, I, I masked a lot of my true emotions and I just bubbled it all inside and and just like went into action mode. I'm going to just like, you know, work really hard at school. I'm going to like make my parents proud. And it's taken me a good like 30 years to um, like embrace, embrace my emotions again and be able to be okay with being sad or being angry or, you know, being fearful and acknowledge that not just to the outside world, but even to myself. How old were you? I was 10 when... Well, actually 12. Sorry, I was 12 when, when the uh, invasion happened. Yeah, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's not a stretch <laughs> that you just described that experience and then <laughs> the field that, that you're in now in terms of how you described it. Particularly, I found consistently for formative experiences for people in that 10 to 15 range, mm-hmm. it has a lot to do with the vocations that they pursue. Yeah, I think it was also so interesting. We grew up in a very conservative, well, by some standards, conservative. So I wasn't allowed to date in high school, right? Or or college, actually, for that matter. And I just remember clearly, like, when we moved back to Cairo after the invasion, which was a lot more open than the strict Kuwait that I grew up in, a a few more kids dated at school. And I just became fascinated by the nonverbals. Like, I could predict who's going to be with who because of the eye gaze interactions. And I I just, like, became so fascinated with that. And, And I do think that you know, that kind of curiosity about this unspoken language, I've had an interest in that from a very young age. And when we're interacting digitally and we don't have that, I miss that, right? I'm like, wait, I can't see you. I don't know if you like this or not. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to someone recently and they were saying how their husband kind of joked that they were kind of the bear word for any, any marriage. Like when she would be like, Oh, they're going to, they're in trouble. And he'd be like, how do you know? And she'd be like, Oh, I just sent something. And it would always fall apart. And he was saying she was sort of the kiss of death for a marriage. And, but, but, <laughs> I, but, but I was, no, I was like, there's something you're seeing. And then I, you know, and I was just asking about her own family and she's like, Oh, my dad sort of picked up and blindsided my mom when you're younger. And I was like, so do you think there's a connection there? And, and she stood stunned silently for like a minute. I was like, I never put that together. 
fascinating. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, I, I, I constantly see these connections between sort of those times and what you were interested in or the situations you were put in and then what, what became important to people. It took me a while to, honestly, it's the process of writing this book that yeah. I reflect so much during that process. And I've had to work through a lot of, a lot of these things that I had just buried deep and never thought about. Right. And, and like my relationship with my dad is another example. I love my dad. But he's also, he has very strict kind of views and very, very kind of inflexible views of gender roles. And for the longest time, like as I wrote this book, I started off as like being, you know, I was angry. And then I was like, well, let me put myself in his shoes. And right. So it was like this two year process of coming to terms with with my cultural upbringing and just like reconciling that with who I am today. So when did you show it to him? When it was done or before? No, it was, so my mom and my sisters uh, read early versions of it and they were like, uh, dude, you can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I edited a little, you know, I, I balanced it a little bit more. But I, I think my parents are proud of, I hope so anyways. I think. But were you, were you nervous? I, were you, I'm sure they are proud. Were you nervous for him to read it? I, a little bit, yes. But I, th- I think they'll appreciate... I don't know. I, I decided to just write very openly and, and just, you know, put myself out there in the hopes, again, that this will resonate with, that people will find parts of it that ring true for them. Right. It's your truth. Yes. That's the other thing, too. Like, my daughter read it, and there was one part where she's like, I don't remember this happening. I was like, but I do. It's my book. So yeah. <laughs> your version of this. <laughs> She'll, she'll write a book discrediting you later later on in life. So come full circle. What, so what's the most important thing that you want people to take from your book? Um, I think this message of embracing your emotions and just like, you know, accepting, finding and accepting your inner voice. I ha- have had like for years and still, I just have this like very kind of Debbie Downer voice in my head that and I think it, it, goes all the way back to my cultural upbringing that just, you know, just continuously says, well, you can't be a CEO of an AI company or you can't do this. Or you can't do that. And I have to like negotiate with that voice. I'm like, well, actually I can, or I will. And it took me forever to not be my own biggest obstacle. And I just want people to, you know, see this story and hopefully be confident to forge their own path. It almost seems like these two prevailing forces. You had this great opportunity and this great paradox. It sounds like that your your cultural upbringing stressed learning and education and giving you all the tools to do everything you want, but then also telling you what you shouldn't do. Most people are not in that situation, right? They're told they can't do this stuff, and so they're not given any any tools or education. That's actually I love how you summarize it that way because it's absolutely true. Like my parents like gave us like all the amazing educational opportunities and exposure to cultures and we traveled and all of that. But at the same time, it was like, yeah, yeah, you, you do all of that, but you, you, you know, like we put you in this box because now you're a married woman and you're a mom or whatever. And, and, but I think the universal theme here is that, I don't know, you find something you're passionate about, you persevere against all the naysayers because there's always a lot of them. And, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, trying and retrying and, and just grit, right? As you say, it's not easy. I, I always joke, yeah, I say that being an entrepreneur CEO is, is very sexy in the rearview mirror once it's, once it's all <laughs> over. The journey is rougher than I think most people perceive. 
you got to be fed. And, and, and if you're not passionate about it, it's really hard to get through some days and weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more we can talk about that, yeah, I think, I think that helps. Although, although I have to say I was so oblivious to all of that. And so in a way that was a blessing too, because if I, I guess if I knew how hard it was going to be, maybe I, I wouldn't have taken it on. I don't know. <laughs> it's better not. I, I signed up for this, uh, we did as a company, we did a, a 24-hour bike ride from London to Paris last year as a charity event to do it in 24 hours, about 180 miles. And again, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll come over, support the team, sign up for it. It, it wasn't until the, and this is just a good lesson in metaphor. So then I'm reading all the paperwork uh, as a little bit ADD entrepreneur, you know, the week before I'm going to packing and, and sort of describing what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And I was like, oh my God, what have I signed up for? And it was an incredible experience. Had I actually paid too much attention to that up front, I probably would have not said yes. And right. it was better to say yes and then learn the reality <laughs> a little right. bit later. Right. All right. So la- last question, and you can answer this singular or repeated, um, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? The biggest personal mistake I did is um, my life. I- I'm working on it. But I just, it was so out of, the balance was so out of whack. So when I started the company, it just took 150% of my mind share. And I just assumed that, you know, my kids and my, my husband, who's now my ex, will just be there, right? And, and, and I did not invest in these other relationships. And it, it hurt my family. And I don't want to be in that position again. And I don't want anybody on my team to be in that position again. So I, I'm very vocal about um, balance and self-care. You know, I, I will cancel everything on my calendar, but not my Zumba class on Fridays, <laughs> except if you're going to write, a ch- you know, literally write a check for like $5 million or something, but otherwise you're not allowed to schedule on top of that. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a work in progress, but that, that was a real, and, and you, you know, it, like people talk about that, but i I have definitely lived that, and I I often wonder if if I was a little bit more balanced early on, if if the outcome would have been different. Wow, thank you, thank you for sharing that. All right, so where can people learn about the book and your work? Uh, where can they find you? I am very easy to find online. Um, the book is available for pre order at uh, ranaelkalubi.com slash girl decoded, or just Google girl decoded. I'm also available on, I'm around on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. And I love to hear from people, you know, their stories. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Uh, I'm really excited. I think the book's going to be a big hit and, and excited to see how it goes for you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Rana and her book and her company and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed the episode of the Elevate podcast today, I'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. It's the best way to help new people find the same content and learn from it as well. Uh, It's super easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you literally look at your iPhone right now, uh, hit the library icon, click on Elevate and scroll down and you can leave a rating or review. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.